This is What Did We Miss, the podcast where we resolve our pop culture blind spots one episode at a time. You did it. I did it. How's it going, Matt? It's going okay. Yeah. Yeah. So what have you been up to? Uh, what have you been consuming? Um, I've been with you. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. We saw um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Let's not talk about that right now. Yeah. I need to, I need to I'm figure not gonna out how get, I feel about it. I'm not going to get into the movie. I'm no, just I know. saying we saw it. No, I know. Yeah. Okay. And I'm just shutting it down fast. Wow. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. I've been watching the Resident Evil movies. Oh, yeah? Yeah. That's great. I You reminded me that there are, what, seven of them? I think it's six. Still. That yeah. seems like it's five excessive. too many. Yeah. They're really strange. Yeah? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, directed by Paul W.S. Anderson. Mm-hmm. The sort of... Big budget B movie director, not yeah. to be confused with Wes Anderson or Paul Thomas oh, Anderson. Yeah, yeah, he's Paul Thomas Anderson's doppelganger, evil doppelganger, or, or schlocky doppelganger. Mm-hmm. I guess. Sure. He has a lot of fans. Yeah, that seems about right. Yeah, uh, a lot of critics like him. They say that he's kind of a really talented director that's kind of toiling away in 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 trash, and that there's value in the things that he's doing. So I kind of wanted to go and evaluate that for myself yeah yeah sounds like dude just wants to get paid when you watch the movies i think there's a genuine affection for the way he he shoots things Mm -hmm. i think the real draw though is probably mila jovovich yeah because i think she's a legitimately great actress and someone that's taken for granted because she stars in resident evil movies but like she has a great physical presence and She's really good with these the fight choreography and pretty committed. So cool. But the movies are weird. There's like scenes that are in reverse and like lots of symmetry and none of the plot matters. It's all bullshit. <laughs> uh, it's just like going from one set piece to the next. But the set pieces are fairly well executed and there's some fun reversals and strange stuff in there. Sure. My memory of the first movie is that it didn't have enough of the uh, elaborate puzzles and hours toiling away trying to find keys and gemstones and to put in statues eye sockets like the games and, did. and ammunition like you run out of ammunition yeah all not, the time. not enough uh not enough resource management i've been playing resident evil 4 as well for the, oh, cool. on the switch and it's a game that meg's always just like you need to stop playing that because it's scary and and you're stressed out right now i'm like i'm not stressed out <laughs> speaking of games they just released Doom and Doom 2 and Doom 3 on Switch. Okay. Which, planting a seeds for a future episode, because you have not really played much of Doom, right? I think I'm in passing. Yeah. But I've never really, like, sat down with Doom and was like, oh, hey, I want to finish this and whatnot, so. It's great. I never played 3, which is the first, like, real 3D one. Okay. But the original is... So wait, so what are the originals? Are they, like... Well, I mean, they're kind of 3D. The characters are sprites. The... The third one is like 3D when like 3D like had it's finally like from like, your perspective. Yeah, it's still first person, but they 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 sort of were the the trailblazers in terms of 3D. They hadn't quite uh, full like 3D polygon okay. characters and all that weren't quite a thing yet. Do you kill Hitler in those games? No, that's in Wolfenstein. Oh, okay. I think I played Wolfenstein. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, I definitely he, didn't play Doom then. He's in a mech suit. Really? Yeah. It's really. And later there are like Nazi Frankenstein monster bad guys. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, Sounds like that movie Overlord that just came out. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you see that? I did not. But I know what you're talking about. It's fine. Yeah. It's fine for schlocky B movie. Back to the schlock, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. Well, we've got a guest with us today. We do. Yeah. So we're going to stop talking about video games. 
Yeah, she's like looking at us like, <laughs> ugh, nerds. Yeah, yeah. So this is this is great uh, for us because uh, we've been recording here at the What Cheer Writers Studio for a while at this point. I think uh, since I think Metal Gear was the last one we did out of my house. Uh, it's been a noticeable improvement in audio quality. So we're here with uh, Jody Vinson, who is the program manager here and a writer. So uh, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm a big fan of the show. That's how we met, is you guys coming through the What's Your Writers Club. And I just love the concept behind What Did We Miss? Yeah. Well, thank you. I've missed a lot of things. So <laughs> well, that's <laughs> what we're here for. <laughs> exactly. Thank you for having me. Yeah. You, um, we asked you a while back and you sent us a list of some things and there were a lot of great ideas on there. So um, I think for this first one, we settled on something that we all sort of have a different type of blind spot too. So we're going to be talking about Purple Rain and you had neither listened to the album or seen the movie, correct? That's right. Yeah. It was a dark blind spot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I had... <laughs> it was dark. <laughs> <laughs> a black hole. <laughs> In my life, yes. <laughs> uh, I had seen the movie once, kind of, but didn't really know the music and, and Matt, I think you were the opposite. You, you kind of knew the music but didn't hadn't watched the movie. Correct. Right. Yep. Cool. Uh, Jody, so why don't you tell us about your, you know, lack of... How did of I miss Prince? His, yeah. <laughs> yeah, good question. I think it's pretty easy. I mean, there's so much popular stuff that sometimes it's like, if you don't catch it at the right age, then sometimes right. it kind of passes you by completely. Yeah, and I think that it was a case of not catching at the right age. I was born the year that Prince uh, recorded Purple Rain. Oh, for a second, I thought you were going to say, I was born the year he died. I was like, isn't that like two years ago? Yeah, she emerged from a, a, a pod <laughs> as a full, fully formed adult. Quickly. No, and actually, I just realized that it was as the date of recording it was 35 years ago yesterday that the film was released so we're kind of right on this anniversary we did it on purpose yeah although <laughs> prince as a jehovah's witness didn't celebrate anniversaries so he would not Ooh, care wow. about this Ooh, deep cut yeah, yeah. I, I didn't i, I know, didn't get did that my in homework. my research so thank you for bringing that to the <laughs> You're table welcome um so yeah i mean i was i was a bit young when when purple rain came out and i think i was thinking back to where my first kind of like awareness of Prince um, came about, and it would have been, you know, at the age, by the time I was aware of him, he was no longer Prince. He was a symbol. <laughs> and uh, that's what I remember. First. The artist formerly known as Prince. Exactly. And I, thinking back, I remember my first conception of that symbol was something like an Egyptian, like, hieroglyphic frog. I'm not sure what I was thinking of, but so I have very vague memories around the symbol. Um, and yeah, that was my history with Prince. I remember watching the 2007 Super Bowl show where he performed Purple Rain in the Rain. So it's been just like a joy to discover him now. Um, so thank you for that. Um, and this is a question I kind of had around your podcast is you have all this wonderful discovery going on. Do you ever feel a sense of regret as well? Because I lived in Minneapolis um, during the last years of Prince's life, and he was not a part of my life. He wasn't a part of my kind of awareness even there, although, you know, it was hard not to encounter him in through other people who are fans or going to a show at First Avenue. He's always giving – people are giving him props from the stage. Um, but I never went to show at Paisley Park. You know, so I'm I'm feeling now, having discovered him, a sense of regret um, of, of not discovering him sooner when he was alive. I don't know if you guys ever feel that. I think certainly when it comes to artists who have died, mm -hmm. um, there's a, a bit of regret in discovering them a little late because you know that, you know, some archival stuff aside, there are certainly some posthumous releases 
after Prince died, but like, you know, you're never going to be able to, if it's something you discover and love too late, you'll never be able to, to get excited for the new thing. But yeah, I mean, I mean, besides that, I don't know if it's always regretful because we also kind of have the, the advantage of being able to access all of it almost anytime we'd like now. So we were actually chatting yesterday outside of the podcast about how sometimes the context for something gives you an appreciation for it. And so what I was saying to Tony is like, sometimes I watch these movies um, and I'm like, oh, this was great, but I don't have any sort of thing that's pulling me to it. And there could be another movie that maybe I don't like as much, but because I have it, I saw it in a certain context that it gave me appreciation for it that I wouldn't have in a different context. And I think what the podcast does is it gives us that context. Yeah. We're doing like this kind of homework and this heavy lifting. And, and so when you immerse yourself fully, even if it's something that we're just like, oh, that was fine, like fish, you still have an appreciation for it. And it's always kind of good to come to something where you're hoping to find the reasons why other people like it and you're hoping to connect to it. So I don't know if I ever actually feel regret because uh, I think the things that I've discovered via the podcast that I've fallen in love with, I'm just excited that all of a sudden I have it now. And especially like with something like the Venture Brothers, like I had seven seasons to watch and that was just so exciting. And it's like I didn't have to wait for any of that. It was all right there. Uh, and the show is still going. So I will be able to watch new seasons as a fan and someone that has probably a little more knowledge about the show than maybe a casual fan might. Yeah, so that was a, a bit long-winded, but... No, mostly, I mean, this experience has been wonderful and I'm thrilled to have Prince in my life now. Oh, um, I did feel that, you know, I wondered about, you know, how would I have encountered Purple Rain if if when it came, if our timelines aligned and I was, like, at that age when it would have meant something different to me, just, like, with all the kind of emotion and angst he's expressing in that movie. Um, so it was just interesting to think about how you encounter things differently at different ages. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Tony, what about your history with Prince? Uh, I was born not long after you were, Jody, and I didn't have, like, an older sibling, and MTV wasn't a thing that was allowed. So there was no real frame of reference for Prince for me until uh, I remember having a friend in elementary school who had a couple of older sisters. Um, so there was some, like, pop culture trickle down from them. And, like, this is such a, like, a typical, like, young boy thing, but to, like to tease friends by saying you're attracted to their mom. And this friend would always be like, your mom looks like the girl in the kiss video. And I like that upset me because I was like, why is this guy into my mom so much? Wait, wait, did they mean Wendy or the girl under the veil? Oh, I don't know. I've been, tr I like, I've been nervous to, <laughs> to go back and watch the video because I don't want him to be right. So that was, um, I mean, that was really my, <laughs> so that was really my only context for Prince. And obviously the, the symbol and uh, maybe the Batman soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> right. I knew that was going to come up. <laughs> um, well, we'll save Purple Rain for when we get to it. How about you, Matt? What about what was your relationship with yeah. Prince like? I own the Batman soundtrack. Yeah? Yeah, I loved it. <laughs> I loved the movie. And so my uncle bought me the cassette. And I was at the right age for that movie to be magic. And so those songs, like, they were inseparable from the movie. And my context was always to see the half Joker version of Prince, uh, at least when I was young. And then I was watching a lot of music videos probably at the early 90s. And that's like when I was kind of discovering a lot about music. But also that was probably at the pubescent age where you're discovering a lot of things that seemed sort of taboo. And so Prince 
was perfect for that age. And I remember, so it was around the time when his album Diamonds and Pearls came out. And this is right before he switched to the symbol. And he had these music videos that I'm not going to say are sexually explicit, but they were they were pretty steamy, yeah. especially for like uh, a preteen. Um, so, you know, there are songs like um, Diamonds and Pearls and Cream and uh, Get Off, <laughs> which, which, you know, for me at the time, I was just like, what am I watching? Mm-hmm. And and they were they were titillating. Uh, and then I remember him performing with his that super tight lacy outfit on the MTV Music Awards with the hole yes, in the butt, yes. so you could see his butt. <laughs> and I was just so like befuddled by all this. So it was like just at the right place at the right time where uh, of of discovery. <laughs> and he was like the kind of the perfect artist for that. But at the time, I was also listening to a lot of like heavy metal. So it was one of those things where I didn't really talk about it with friends. It was just like the music video would come on in a rotation and I'm like looking around. Yeah, you narrate that you're looking around, Matt. I, I'm this looking around. Radio. I just said that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking around and I'm like, I'm not going to change the channel. I'm going to I'm going to watch this. This is uh I'm liking this. And then I didn't really have too much connection to him, but when he died, I it's unfortunate and I think we brought this up in the past on the show, but Anytime some big creative force dies, I, I kind of do a deep dive. So at that point, I, I went in and, and I listened to a bunch of his albums, at least the, the early stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sign of the Times was just like a live one, which a lot of people were like, oh, this is essential. So I listened to that a lot in Purple Rain. The year that he died, I worked at the Newport Folk Festival. I worked backstage doing some videography and we would film interviews and the artists' backstage performances. And I remember... It was like tail end of the day when the sun is going down and, and the last performer had, had wrapped up and everyone's going home and they play music over the speakers and, and Purple Rain came on. And and it was like a really beautiful moment that you could tell a lot of people, even though you weren't communicating with each other, uh, that everyone was sharing this, this moment because he had just passed away. Until my friend Rich was just like, oh, what's with this power ballad garbage? And then everyone <laughs> turned on him and be like, oh, how no. dare you? <laughs> Sacrilege. Yeah. yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. That's so great that you did hit Prince at like the time you were kind of like supposed to or where that music would like target you. Because I definitely was thinking back and what that would be like. Um, but I like just also coming across something that was in the world when I came into the world and was informing it in ways that I wasn't even aware of. And I'm just like, just feel so grateful that like someone was there representing all these incredible diversity and themes and and kind of opening doors in that way. Um, Because I feel like it influenced my life, even though I wasn't aware of the direct influence. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think I mentioned this when we talked about Queen, but as I was listening to Purple Rain, there are sections of songs and I'm like oh this this is what they were ripping off in Sega games I remember playing <laughs> this sort of like the synthesized said, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> speaking specifically about Purple Rain did either of you have any sort of awareness or you know sort of connection to it prior to sitting down and watching and listening to it no no, no. there's the imagery of him in that outfit with the shirt from Seinfeld. Um, <laughs> the puffy shirt? <laughs> the puffy shirt. <laughs> I think Seinfeld wore it better. No, sorry. Um, on the the purple motorcycle, which I saw someone on Letterboxd who reviewed uh, Purple Rain say that the movie couldn't be made today because Prince couldn't ride around without a helmet. <laughs> yeah, but that's... And, and the cover, obviously. like it, That imagery is just so iconic. You kind of right. know it, even mm-hmm. without... And, and while watching the movie, it was just kind of like, oh, yeah, okay. 
like this feels familiar even though I haven't really seen it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I recognize more um I guess place-based images and stuff when I was watching the movie because of spending time in Minneapolis um, and going to First Ave. And then the last time I was in Minneapolis was just a few, maybe a month ago. I knew we were going to be doing this show. I didn't make it to Paisley Park, but I did. My sister lives like a mile from where the house that he, they filmed where he grows, is supposedly grows up in. Um, so I went there and took a selfie with the house. Awesome. Um, so, you know, watching the film, there was some recognition of those iconic moments and those iconic places that um, I had seen firsthand. Cool. I had seen this movie once. Uh, a friend of uh, a friend of ours, me and my wife, invited us over. Um, they're huge Prince fans. So for his birthday, he invited some people over to hang out and watch the movie. And I will preface this by saying that I know that, like, there's no way to tell a drug story without sounding like an asshole. But uh, I got smoked under the table, and we sat down to watch the movie. And um, my memory of it is I f- thought that there were no longer any bones in my neck. Because uh, I was, I like, I was resting in a chair, that, like a very comfy couch, where like my head tipped back too far. And then when I sort of managed to get through that, my other takeaway was that I was convinced that Morris Day was like a fourteen-year-old kid with a tape-on mustache. He just seemed so young. <laughs> kind of looks like. That, he, <laughs> and watching it again, I'm like, okay, that's like an extreme reaction to like not a a wrong observation. They're all like super young, and it's just like how silly and and big his characters in the movie but uh but long story short other than morris day i i remember next to nothing about watching it until i watched <laughs> it for this so let's get into the movie came out in 1984 really really big hit audiences went in droves and again and again and again and again and again and i believe the movie was prince's idea he went to his managers and he was just like hey in order to be next level i need a movie Right. Just so weird. Especially because he wasn't Prince yet. I mean, he yeah. was, but uh, his his sort of, he didn't have the clout to really be making those kinds of demands. A lot of people thought he was nuts. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, He's super confident. Yeah. Super confident. There was a piece on NPR actually a few months ago talking about when Doves Cry specifically, but they're talking about there were a string of rock stars, like Paul McCartney level rock stars who were like, I'm going to make a movie. And they were colossal duds. So then here's Prince insisting that he <laughs> get to make a movie. Yeah, he really had to do some convincing. But then ended up being the first person to have the number one single and album and movie all out at the same time. So jokes on everybody else. I love how unlikely it is and how, I mean, so many of the people involved in the making of it were really amateurs, um, directors, actors. Yeah, everything. it was the director's first movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. The director of photography was Donald E. Thorin, and he was not a newbie. And he had lens before this Thief, which is Michael Mann's movie. Oh, that's a great movie. Yeah, and it looks awesome. And this movie looks good, too. Uh, it had some 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 pretty great uh, lighting, uh, but we'll get into that as we go along. Um, so let's start right at the beginning, and the movie opens up on the first song from the album, and that is "Let's Go Crazy." Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to get through this thing called life. Electric word, life, it means forever, and that's a mighty long time. But I'm here to tell you, there's something else. The afterworld. A world of never-ending happiness. You can always see the sun. Day or night. 
beginning i just think it's so joyful and goofy at the same time and it encapsulates everything that's great about him it's like he's he's preaching to everybody like here's the movie here's the song come along with me don't worry i'm gonna lead you in the, the right path yeah he's really kind of coming into his own i, yeah. I don't generally love talking in, in songs but this really you just hear him finding his voice and um it's triumphant as you said and the the song is encapsulates a lot of the themes that you know would be throughout his career the sacred and the profane the kind of spirituality and salvation and overtones of doomsday and those things are all in that song but it and yet it's a celebration which i love and then the way it's portrayed is on the in the movie is sort of like a montage introducing prince and the revolution his backing band and, and reading about sort of some inspiration for it he wanted he wanted this to be like describe it specifically as wanting it to be like the sequence in the Godfather at the church when when Michael's there for uh never the, seen the Godfather. Right. When when Michael's sort I of, actually haven't. You guys know that was on my list, oh, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I sorry, continue. I do like the story. He wanted it to be like the montage when when Michael's going through the uh, the baptism oath, becoming the Godfather and the like the cutting to all of <laughs> all of the mobsters about to be assassinated. And that's like that was the reference point for introducing the revolution. So I I read this too, and I actually heard that it was the, the director Albert oh, okay. Magnolia's idea. Yeah. But and this is how he sold it to the producer because Magnolia was just out of film school, and when um, I think it was Bob Cavallo, the producer, was looking for a writer. Or first they had because I was interested in the writing of the film. Um, who wrote this? And I guess Prince was carrying around this like purple notebook for a while, and then they hired a writer, William Blinn, and then. They found Magnoli, and he really was just, so far he was just like editing films. But the way he sold it to Cavallo was describing this opening montage with the idea of The Godfather. And um, what was interesting, and I know I'm, I haven't seen The Godfather, but apparently Coppola wasn't satisfied with this montage until they laid organ music over it. And so as a unifying effect. And it's just that kind of inversion is happening, you know, with Purple Rain where the narrative... They needed these narrative pieces to kind of bring something to the music. I, I mean, not that the music can't stand on its own, believe me. But as someone who's coming at the music, a more of a writer, more 
in, you know, I'm more of a reader into narrative. So having this film as my first introduction to the album, I watched the film first. That meant a lot because it gave it some context and story and emotion. And I could think about what was fact and what was fiction. It was, you know, informing these songs. Um, so anyway, I love that story. And I loved and whether or not it has the same effect of The Godfather, <laughs> I don't know. But it is quite the entrance. I will say that. Yeah. I mean, in, in a way, it does kind of have a, a similar effect without the insidious connotations that The Godfather had. But both scenes are sort of there to to show the the emergence of this sort of singular force. In the case of The Godfather, it's really that's the the, the sort of catalyst and the the defining moment where he is now firmly like he is in this life. He has orchestrated this elaborate hit while also, you know, the, the hypocrisy of him being in a church and taking this oath to renounce Satan. Meanwhile, we're we're being introduced to a a singular musical force who feels that he deserves this movie you're about to watch. And yeah. he's bringing the religious themes into mm-hmm. a secular mm-hmm. space. So it's kind of again. And so we learn that Prince and the Revolution are um, the house band at, at this club, along with Morris Day and the Time and Des Dickerson and the Moderners. What a mouthful. <laughs> and we also meet Apollonia. And she's trying to get a job at the club with one of these groups. Oh, and speaking of The Godfather as well, there was a character named Apollonia. Mm-hmm. That's right. Apparently Prince named um, Cotero the actress, Apollonia, although she later said that it was her middle name, her given middle name. Yeah, that's, that's what like everything says <laughs> really? now. It's just like it's her middle name. It's just like, oh, sure. Great. <laughs> so you have Prince, obviously, with this mystique. And the diagonal buttons, which were amazing. And like the, you know, that I think he perpetuated that kind of man of mystery with like the smoke and everything. But the other person who struck me in this opening montage, like you see Apollonia and you know she's going to be immediately you're like, oh, she's the target, the romance. She's the damsel in distress. But I was like, who is that girl with the asymmetrical hair next to Prince on the stage? That she's awesome. That girl right there, that's who Prince should be interested in. <laughs> and of course, it was Windy. Yep. The Revolution, who I now have a huge crush on along with Prince. And I was so thrilled to learn later on that he dated her twin sister, Susanna. So anyway, I'm I'm sure I'll bring up Wendy again, but I had to sure. jump in at the beginning to give props to her for being having so much stage presence, and it, I thought she was incredible. Yeah. All of the members of the Revolution were so striking. And yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, Prince sort of has a reputation that you know going into it about his, you know, his appearance. And in this, he looks sort of like a like a matador from outer space. <laughs> um, but everybody in the band looks like a character. I mean, one guy's dressed as a doctor. He's in scrubs and has like the... Okay. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Because it doesn't really fit with the rest of the band, right? Like, I feel like Prince dressed everyone else, but then like he didn't want to have to get fancy. So he's like, I'm going to wear these scrubs. I think... There's a making of feature on the Blu-ray, oh. and um, so it interviews everyone but Prince. And uh, so they're going through all the members, and they're just like, "Yeah, you know, we we were just became like an actual band." Prince came to us and we're like, "Yeah, we're gonna do a movie. You're gonna take some acting lessons, and there's gonna be a lot of choreography." So everything was really choreographed. And from what I read from the director, he said that what they did to do the live performances, they shot them like they were live performances. So. They did each song twice, and they had four cameras. So that means he had eight cameras to cut between. He said that's the, you know, they had to move quickly, essentially. And that gave them the coverage that they needed to do these things. But that means that because they were doing two separate performances, that everything had to be super choreographed. And when you watch the movie and you see all these gyrations that Prince makes, and that 
seems so insane because it feels so spur of the moment. Like it feels like he's just feeling it. Like he's like, oh man, I'm really laying into this solo and now I'm just going to like writhe and wriggle on the stage. Like it doesn't feel choreographed or planned at all. I read an oral history of the making of the movie and there's this one quote from uh, Bob Cavallo who is a former manager of Prince and the bands. Um, he says, we were a few weeks behind and we had four weeks set to shoot the music. So I said to Prince, you know, Albert is going to want to do 20 takes. He's going to want different angles. And Prince, he almost changed color. I'll give him one take for each song. I said, no, that's extreme. What if you just did a couple of takes with a bunch of cameras? We got a bunch of cameramen and Prince, who's unbelievable, always hit his mark. If he did three takes, there was no change. Within a week, we had done four weeks work. So, I mean, the man was like such a like perfectionist Mm -hmm. that I'm not surprised that he had every like minuscule gyration down to like the centimeter. I think he's just so good at everything because like he, he taught himself how to play his instruments by just hearing things. Like he didn't know how to read music when he was a kid. He just could hear things and pick up on them. And they incorporate some of those elements into the movie with his father, uh, which we'll get to in a bit. The other thing about Let's Go Crazy is the version in the movie is a bit extended. There's like a sort of like a middle solo piece um, that has this kind of like atonal moment where he's just smashing the shit out of the piano. And it's great. And I wish it was on the record because <laughs> as Tony knows, I, I love atonal music. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it was pretty exciting to see in this context. But the next song is actually by Morris Day in the Time. We're either of you familiar with Morris Day? And and are you going to say the same thing I'm going to say right now? If you want to say it on three. Okay. One, two, three. Jay, Jay and Silent, Silent Bob, Bob Strike Back. back. Yes, that's the, the only frame of reference wow, I had. that for... was incredible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, I, I only knew Jungle Love uh, through Jay and Silent Bob's mutual obsession with Morris Day in the time. <laughs> Uh, I hate us. I'm sorry. (laughs) It really makes us seem really lame. (laughs) If we haven't already done a good job of showing how nerdy we are. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Are you excited for the Jay and Silent Bob reboot? Let's not do this to Jody. (laughs) (laughs) All you had to say was no. Yeah, no. (laughs) Me neither. Um, Yeah. Did you care about this song? Did you like this? I mean, I think in the context of Prince songs, I'm just like, get to the Prince songs. Within the context of the movie, uh, you know, it's a, it's a nice introduction to Morris Day and his character throughout the film. I did uh, try to listen to the album that was the time album that was released to sort of coincide with Purple Rain and did not particularly enjoy. I didn't really give it a fair shake. But, yeah, it's one of those things where and we've talked about this before, songs that we wouldn't normally like without the context of the movie we know it from. And I think this is one of those things for me. I I enjoy the song mostly because I have the context of the film. Yeah, I think I've only gotten to the point where I'm listening to Morris Day and that I'm now after, during the movie, I'm like, yeah, let's get to Prince. But now I'm like soaking up every little bit of Prince that I, and and, and he really wrote, I think, most of the songs for that album and you can, and played on it too. I think you can hear him. and, And so like I, I've listened to it listening for that. And there's a few really good songs on it. There's some others that like, I don't know, the perspective on women in Morris Day's songs I don't always appreciate. Um, I don't know if it's part of his character or not. And we can talk about that in the movie too. But yeah, when it, when it came to Jungle Love in the movie, it was like an introdu- good introduction to his character with the like 
Jerome holding the mirror, which I guess he always did in his shows, and the Indian was just this goofy character. But um, I didn't pay attention to the music until I had a deeper investment in Prince himself. He's sort of the villain of the movie? Sort of? I mean, like, I guess if you could say there was a villain. Right. Well, I mean, what's what's kind of fascinating is that, in a weird way, this movie reminded me a lot of professional wrestling, where... <laughs> so, no, hear me out. So, like, so the performances... In, in the movie, like the, the actual on stage when the bands are performing are like the wrestling matches. And then the narrative stuff in between is sort of like in wrestling, there's all this storyline and characters. And, and Prince, like you said, you know, wrote the Times music and he sort of put these bands together in the Apollonia Six or Vanity Six. And he, he sort of created this little uh, universe uh, of bands that he had control over. He's sort of the Vince McMahon of, of this. <laughs> I'm starting to see it though. I, I see the parallel. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, and they're always like in, like they're always in costume. Like there are scenes where Morris Day and Jerome are like walking through downtown Minneapolis and they're, you know, surrounded by normal people. And they just have like these like big ridiculous suits on. And Prince again, always looks like he's from another planet. To me, it was like, they were superheroes. Yeah, like, exactly. Apollonia walks around in like just lingerie and a cape. <laughs> you know, it, 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 for for a large portion of the movie, and Prince has like these giant collars and this deep purples that are the same purples used in Batman. Right. So like, I was just like, this is not that far off from Batman, uh, especially with like the heightened sort of reality and the mythologizing of these larger-than-life characters. Which he, like, carried into life. Like, he actually got mad when people called these his wardrobe costumes. Like, this was clothes for him and his band. And apparently, like, if the band left their hotel, like, a band member left their hotel room to go get ice, they were supposed to be in their lingerie or whatever costume they were <laughs> they were supposed to be wearing. Yeah, it's really striking when, you know, it cuts to him, you know, Prince, looking like Prince in, like, his little suburban house with his parents. Because then you're like, well, you still live at home? How old are you supposed to be? What's happening? <laughs> yeah, when he gets thrown on the ground in his, like, purple. Yeah, it's definitely quite the contrast. So the next song is uh, Take Me With You. Look at me like that. Uh, <laughs> I was asking Jody. When I first heard it on the uh, movie, I liked it. I liked the opening of it. I liked it. You know, I like a good road trip song. It had that lightness to it, which I think. In the movie. In uh, the movie, it works. Yeah, he's driving his motorcycle. Yeah, he, with yeah, Apollonia. with Apollonia. They're going out to the lake. Yeah. Um, 
not Lake Minnetonka. And um, then, but then when you listen in, in the context of the album, which is such a tight album with so many great hits, it definitely seemed to me to be the weakest song on it. And, and in part because I don't know if Apollonia has the best voice. Definitely, I feel her Sex Shooters song on the on the movie is the weakest weakest uh, song on the movie. And, and this song. Sorry, um, it's it, I don't know. It's fun. It's campy. It's light, and yeah. it, and it and it balances something in the album. But uh, but it wasn't you know my favorite. Yeah, I like the harmonies, uh, and I like the bridge a lot. And I think it has a nice. It's placed well within the album. I think, and I think yes. if it was anywhere else on the album, it probably wouldn't work as well. Right. Yeah. No, I agree. I think within the movie it works well, but I, it's the weakest link on the album, and it bums me out to have learned later that there was an epic 14-minute-long computer blue that we missed out on as a result of it. Oh, we'll yeah. have to talk. But, yeah, it, it, yeah, it's... Yeah. Um, and I, I get the impression that uh, he really had to coach Apollonia's performance uh, out of she her She was nominated for a Razzie. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah. think Which, that's... I mean, like, I don't care because the Razzies suck, and it's just, like, the worst... Um, I don't want to even call it awards body because it's just lazy... So I don't really give it much clout, but... Yeah, I also have to imagine there were worse performances than hers in 1984. Yeah, so he takes her to Lake... Uh, well, it's not Lake uh, Minnetonka. But he takes her to this this lake, and he tells her that um, she has to purify herself. So she's like, yeah, sure. And then she takes her clothes off and <laughs> jumps into the lake. Right. And it gets out, and he's just like, not Lake Minnetonka. <laughs> What a prince is kind of a dick. Yeah, yeah, and it gets into that. You know, definitely the the movie was of its time, but it has you know some misogyny in it, and I, yeah. I think I felt a little bit of that in watching the way he treats her after she gets. Yeah, out. Well, it's supposed to be yeah, played as kind of like playful and cute, but it's like, cute, like fuck yes. you, man, it's cold. It's right, it's right on the edge. Well, and I guess it was really cold because this is Minnesota, and they were filming in I don't know November, September. It was she had to do it four times, and then she like passed out. And like had hypothermia. When she comes out of the water and then it cuts to her, it's like a medium shot with the two of them. It's a two shot with with him on the bike and she's approaching the bike. That was filmed in another location. In LA. Yeah, in a different time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And this reminds me as well, uh, I don't know how I didn't mention this earlier, but another like touchstone for my reference to Prince was the Chappelle show sketch. Oh, yeah. Where Charlie Murphy recounts. Uh, being challenged to a basketball game, and at one po- and like it's full of references that are funnier now that I've listened and watched the movie. But there's a scene where, so the joke is that uh, Charlie Murphy and his, you know, his entourage or think it's hilarious that somebody like Prince and the Revolution think they could challenge him to a basketball game, and then they like wipe the floor with them. And at one point, Charlie Murphy complains about it being too hot, and he asks for a glass of water, and Chappelle as Prince. Uh, suggests that he purify himself in the waters of Lake Minnetonka. <laughs> I have in my notes here that Prince's motorcycle looks like the Batgirl's motorcycle in the 60s Batman mm-hmm. TV show. I same has, same t- color and the sparkliness. And it has like symbols that were later, like the male-female symbol on it, I believe, yeah. that he later combined. Yeah. So the next song after um, Take Me With You is a song by Des Dickerson in The Modern Airs, and that's the song is called Modern Air. I kept the first time I watched it. I thought he was saying mountaineer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think uh, my wife Sandra had a similar reaction. She's like, "What's he saying?" <laughs> and the crowd's doing this weird like dip dance. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah the the choreography in the crowd was great. Oh yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's really great. And the yeah. looks, yeah. That's my pop culture regret: never going to a show where we all 
broke into the yeah, same exactly. dance. Really? I'm with you. Does uh, slam dancing count? No. Why, we're all running around in a circle. I guess. <laughs> I'm being scolded. <laughs> not, not the same. Not the same. <laughs> Getting a finger wag. Um, I, I have no memory of this song out of the context of the movie. It feels like almost like incidental music. Yeah, just and that, kinda... that's almost purposeful. Yeah. Which is strange because later on everyone's just like, oh, man, no one here is feeling what Prince is doing. It's just like, really? Is that really true? <laughs> but we love the other But we love band. the other two uh, house bands, yeah. And maybe they're just throwing him a bone because he was the guitarist and Dove Deckerson was yeah. the d- guitarist in the revolution before Windy and so maybe they were just trying to give him a spot <laughs> I guess so maybe that was yeah. a severance package yeah, yeah. and that segues <laughs> right into the beautiful ones This song's great. Yeah, it's fucking great. Yeah. Yeah. This is the first of a couple of instances where I got like big time Bowie vibes. Oh yeah. And it, it's it's sort of interesting because both of both of them sort of existed in a very similar plane in terms of their approach to music. They really sort of were never limited by any particular genre or, or type of sound. Um, but also their their appearance, uh, they kind of defied a lot of conventional gender ideas and, and the fact that they both died the same year kind of was was really odd considering how much overlap there was uh there's this article in the washington post um an opinion piece by uh, Alyssa rosenberg titled morning prince and david bowie who showed there's no one right way to be a man and this is the quote uh but if conventional notions of gender were only one of the things that didn't constrain bowie and prince their transcendence of this particular category is still a particularly significant part of their legacies in the clothes they wore, the lean bodies they lived in, the way they positioned themselves in their music and art, their relationships to LGBT communities, and in so many other ways, Prince and Bowie were living arguments that there is no one way and no correct way for a man to dress, to move, to decide what he values, to choose who he loves, or where he stands in relation to that person. And in another piece in that oral history 
that I, I read, Questlove talks about how Prince was kind of a tough sell for him and his friends because of the way he looked. But then there's a music video that comes out with, with him and Apollonia going at it in a barn. And he's like, oh, like there's nothing that says that you can't present yourself that way and, and still like, you know, be a man. So it's 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 really I think this movie sort of must have been super important for people who are sort of questioning that within themselves to see that representation on stage. For sure. I think the Bowie thing is uh, is a great observation, especially because they both made popular music that was really, really weird. And like these are pop songs, but there's so much attention to detail and really strange choices and they both did that and I think that's what always kind of pushed them to the forefront where it was still sort of accessible but like if you really strip down its component parts you're like oh wow that's a those are in, inspired choices and this one is that, that kind of modulating synthesizer at the beginning that's kind of like wavering uh, and then also the the mix of electronic drums with the real drums um, it's, it's kind of minimal and and sparse and slinky and then he comes in with this great falsetto and he has just like an amazing range and it's incredible what he can do with the falsetto and how he goes from falsetto to like screaming and I don't know many singers that are capable of that yeah and then the song in terms of of story or plot like the song has such a power and it feels like it's definitely directed at someone and apparently he may have written it for Susanna Melboyne, Wendy's twin sister and um, there's Wendy again. And speaking um, to your your point, Tony, I, I think the whole band was kind of representative of kind of that, um, you know, of kind of bridging all those the divides and kind of breaking down those barriers, whether they're racial or gender. And Wendy and Lisa were lovers, and you know, you had Mark Brown up there, and it was it was it had to have impact. Um, and and then they're transcending all these things through their the art, you know. And so I agree, I'm with you there. It's a beautiful song, and then in the movie. Of course, he's singing to Apollonia, and she's sitting with Morris Day, and they're drinking champagne together. And so um, he's kind of this, you know, that's where the emotion is, is coming in the movie. But it's also where Morris Day has maybe the worst line in the movie. Which <laughs> Can I read it? Yeah. I wish you could see my home. It's so exciting. In my bedroom, I have a waterbed. <laughs> that's the line and it's delivered with not much more affect than that anyway uh, speaking of waterbeds quick tangent my <laughs> uh, my, my wife hung out with uh, a friend of hers and her friend has um, uh, a couple of daughters uh, I think the oldest one is nine um, the other one's much younger but my my wife Sandra brought over a stack of movies and she brought Edward Scissorhands because uh, the nine year old is kind of like she's kind of you know gothy and she's she's into that kind of stuff but yeah there's that scene in edward scissorhands where he pokes the holes in the waterbed <laughs> but sandra had to explain to this nine-year-old <laughs> what waterbeds were <laughs> that's terrific yeah yeah um yeah morris day is like he's such a goof and i mean there are a lot of unbelievable plot points in the movie but the idea that Prince for a minute thought that Apollonia would have been remotely interested in this like this dweeb in a pimp suit was so great. And he like my other favorite part of that scene is when he like he orders the most expensive champagne and he gives the woman the cash and he's like, keep the change. And then she walks away and then he pulls Jerome over and he goes, go get my change. And he's such like a it's like it's almost such like a 
uh, man, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, like a screwball comedy yeah, it's like villain. Abbott, Abbott and Costello yeah. kind of like the who's on first kind of yeah, yeah, routines yeah. all Which, the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, so one thing that this um, performance also kind of sets up is this recurring lighting scenario, which is that the stage is kind of bathed in purple, like a light purple, and the audience is always like in a, in a red. And so for this, we're really only seeing Prince on stage for a lot of it, and his re- he's channeling all of this to Apollonia, who's, who's watching from um, the crowd. Uh, and it, it's really just like a medium shot of Prince uh, and then does shot reverse shot with, to Apollonia and then like a slow push in on Apollonia. And he, oh, the uh, so Dr. I know this is Albert uh, Manoli's first movie, but I think the one of the wisest decisions he made was to keep the camera on Prince and don't cut very often. <laughs> and I think that was really wise. They were just like, no, like you don't have this presence and just cut away from it yeah. or cut frequently we'll talk about that again uh, especially for purple rain the performance of purple rain um but this is the first time they really just kind of linger on him when the whole band is doing their thing yeah so 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 after this song prince takes apollonia back to his house he comes down the fire escape it's like very phantom like and very yeah yeah yeah. and then he plays this this piece of music called god uh which is kind of like some uh composite stuff from other pieces of music and it's got like this weird sort of stuttering electronic drum thing, uh, which has a really strange rhythm. I don't think it's really like, it's kind of all over the place. Uh, and then it has like some backward vocals behind it. It's pretty interesting. And then it kind of shows all these close-ups of his room. And his weird those... porcelain dolls. Yeah. yeah. Lots and, of candles. Yeah. And when she first descends into the basement, there's like, yeah, those shots of the eyes and then the bare bulb kind of swinging. It's a little bit like... Yeah, and it's that haunting, and 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 it's a girl crying that he's playing backwards, and yeah, um, he put, he has those backwards lyric on the album too. After yeah. after, darling Nikki, yeah. <laughs> we see Apollonia in like what appears to be the tiniest underwear ever <laughs> ever made. It's so strange. It's just this <laughs> tiny little. It doesn't look comfortable. Yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if it's uh, if it was made for comfort. Probably, probably not. It was. Uh, we haven't really talked about the plot of this movie yet. Yeah, because kind of like it hasn't the... really, it hasn't really. Nothing has really come up at this point. All we know is that he's pining over Apollonia and that he has this spot as. Well, we we haven't really talked about like Apollon who who Apollonia is. She has sure. she has come to Minneapolis uh, in search of stardom and fame, which is the appeal of Morris Day, I guess, is that she thinks he can get her there. Yeah, because yeah. he he is sort of deliberately making these promises hoping to to strike up some sort of romance with her and and prince isn't offering her that he even like you know he has that line like you know is that what you're into is making it and but i don't i mean the plot is kind of ridiculous oh it certainly is yeah it gets forwarded here i think at this point because you have the love scene and then right you get his home life right after this we see the band well wendy and lisa um performing Purple Rain, and Prince shoots him down. And then immediately following that, we see Prince's home life. Mm -hmm. And his uh, father beats his mother. And then from this point on, we get the sense that Prince is worried that he will turn into his father. And I think this part is probably what could be called the most autobiographical or revealing of, of, you know, Prince, who otherwise was quite elusive about his, his personal life. But he said that, you know... The most autobiographical scene of the movie is him crying as he looks at his mom. And yeah, this is 
these themes also of his father, who his real father in life was also a, a musician, a jazz musician. Um, and so that kind of father-son relationship and wanting to both emulate but also not be who his father was, not perpetuate those kind of themes of violence or not being able to handle the fame or make it um, feel, I think, the most kind of, it's, it, it at least appears that Prince is being vulnerable and kind of authentic in those moments. Yeah, the, the relationship with his dad in the film, you know, there's that moment where they're talking about their music and he asks his dad if he's ever written anything down and his dad's like, I, didn't, I don't write it down. As if, like, to write it down makes you less of a musician. And in real life, Prince wasn't allowed to play in the in his home when his dad was around because it was never – his dad just would have, like, hounded him for it. Like, you're doing it wrong, and it's not going to – you're not as good of a musician as I am. Joke's on that guy. <laughs> I guess, right? <laughs> so uh, immediately following this, Apollonia buys a, a guitar for Prince, and it's this – it's not the – the symbol, obviously, from um, the 2007 Super Bowl show. Yeah, uh, which he, he had that guitar for a while. Oh, did but he? it's it's got uh, it's a white guitar, and then the 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 body of the guitar has the um, it's got some weird flourishes. Yeah, on it. yeah. And then she tells him that she's gonna join Morris Day's group, and then he immediately hits her. And this is following the scene where um, we see Prince's dad hitting his mom. Yeah, there is no subtlety in his sort of. Becoming what he feared and then his redemption both come completely out of left field. Yeah. And it's strange to think that like he essentially commissioned this movie and like he thought this would represent him. And he had to know that he wouldn't come across well in a scene like that in particular. Mm -hmm. No one's gonna be like, oh, man, like Prince hit this girl. And but, you know, Purple Rain. (laughs) And I I did feel I mean, like, obviously, it's not fun to watch and it's not a pretty scene. And. At the same time, I feel like he was actually, in this case, it wasn't gratuitous violence. He was exploring something, a theme, and whether this would be perpetuated and and exploring it. There's other points in the film, like when Morris Day throws a woman in the dumpster, where I felt like, no, that's gratuitous. That's misogyny. I don't want to watch that. Um, But I felt less like, I mean, it wasn't. Yeah, I think that it's trying to show that, like, he doesn't want to be this way. Yeah. Um, It kind of, I don't know if it comes out of nowhere, but it's blunt. It's certainly blunt. Right? Yeah, I, I think my my issue with it is ultimately how quickly the movie lets him off the hook for it. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, right. Are you talking about the ending of the yeah, movie? Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. just like yeah, and we'll we'll get into that when we get mm-hmm. to it. But it is ridiculous. Yeah. All of these themes are definitely explored in maybe the next song when yeah, I talk about yeah, it. Yeah. So the next song is a little ditty uh, <laughs> called "When Doves Cry."
So I'm assuming you've heard that song before, Jody. Of course, yes. <laughs> yeah. I was very familiar with that song. It's funny because uh, the producers and the director approach Prince and are like, hey, we need a song for a montage. And he's like, yeah, sure. And then the next day he had two fucking songs. That's a day. Amazing. And then one of them was When Doves Cry. Crazy. That's crazy. Oh, my God. Yes, the way I heard it described by, by Wendy and um, uh, Mike Fink, a.k.a. Dr. Fink, who's the keyboard player in the band, was that they were doing a photo shoot for the movie. It was still prior to it coming out, obviously, but uh, it was getting kind of close to the release. And they're at the wherever they were doing the photo shoot. And then Prince's limo pulls up and like they just hear this song just pounding out of it. And he invites them all in one at a time to listen to it. And he's like, now go learn it. Um, <laughs> yeah, he played every instrument on this. And I think what's really fascinating about this song, one of the most popular pop songs of the 80s, if not of all time, is it has no bass in it. Right, you mentioned it was pounding, but it, there was no bass. Yeah. And it gives it, I don't know. It's... Well, because he, he had a bass line and he said, he this is it. too traditional. Yeah. This, uh, this is too much of a pop song. I need it to have a little more oomph. I think the song is so clever in how he structures it and how he builds it because it's really simple. And when you hear like, oh, he wrote it in a day and you kind of break the song apart, it really is deceptively simple because he just has the drum beat and the hook isn't really any instrument necessarily. It's it's the melody. But what he does is he builds the song through harmony. So he'll have one melody in one register and then build on that with a high harmony. But then the second verse, it's the low harmony. And then in the third verse, it's almost like a call and response. But the response has taken on the lead melody. So it's always building off of itself as it goes. It's so impressive, especially for, like I said, how deceptively simple it is. Yeah, and that opening solo is just wild. Yeah, it's great. It's so noisy and gnarly. and it, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's what's always so impressive about listening to this album and then, you know, kind of branching off and, and dabbling in some other Prince stuff is, yeah, like every once in a while he will just shred. And it's, I don't know that he gets talked about as such a great guitar player um, as much as maybe he should. But, I mean, he's, yeah, he's wild. And so this whole song is also, like I said earlier, it's set to a montage. And it's mostly him having sex with Apollonia. <laughs> one ridiculous one in a barn. Uh, it's kind of the purple, you can see like a purple haze behind yeah. him. Yeah. And then it also has uh, some shots of his parents fighting and him driving his motorcycle and him looking forlornly out of a lake. And you're like, this is so stupid. And then you're like, oh, but it's when doves cry. So so I guess it works. It works. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it yeah. goes together. One thing we haven't mentioned about his parents is that in the movie, his mother is portrayed as being white when in, in reality she was black, which just further kind of perpetuates his kind of elusive, am I this, am I that, uh, doesn't matter, kind of blurring of boundaries. Anything else on When Doves Cry? I mean, I don't know how interesting it is to our conversation necessarily, but that the piano solo at the end, he, to get it the way it sounds, he he slowed the backing track down by half, and that's how he recorded it, and then he just sped it up and dropped it into the song. Love stuff like that. Yeah, he was extremely clever and just kind of figuring out how to, you know, if he couldn't do it, himself and like you just found a workaround and made it work so before we get to the next song computer blue yeah i have a question yes yeah uh tony is the water warm enough <laughs> matt uh. shall we begin <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Um, so right before Computer Blue, <laughs> <laughs> um, Prince confronts his dad, and his dad is playing piano. Mm-hmm. And he's actually playing the solo from uh, Computer Isn't Blue. Isn't that incredible? Yeah, yeah, it's great. And so Prince, like, I guess, so I guess, because that's how Prince learned how to play, is like listening to his dad and then just figuring it out. Like he could just play things, which is that's a different kind of uh, genius. Yeah. Right. You know, you, if you can hear music and understand it on just this, you know, fundamental level that most people can't even possibly comprehend. But th- that segue is right into Computer Blue. Wendy? Yes, Lisa. Is the water warm enough? Yes, Lisa. Shall we begin? Yes, Lisa. Well, listening to the album, I have to admit that Computer Blue, I would have probably skipped over it quite a few times, except I love that bridge. It's incredible. And then when I watched the movie a second time, I noticed what you had mentioned, that the the father plays it on the on the piano. It has such a great effect in the film because you have that immediate, immediately the next scene, he incorporates what he's heard. So he's demonstrating that ability. And then he's also, I think furthering the plot so it's not just this crazy immediate transformation at the end where he listens to Wendy and Lisa and and collaborates with someone but he's showing at this midpoint in the movie that he knows how to listen to other people's music and incorporate and work with it too and then I found out that his Prince's real father John L. Nelson actually wrote that piece of music so they collaborated on it so I just love that overlaying of the autobiographical and that true true theme with um, what's happening in the movie. Yeah, it's great because the song kind of drops out, the drums settle in a bit, and then you hear this like wash of synthesizer, and then the whole song just shifts tone yeah. completely and it goes into this this really beautiful bridge. Yeah. And then it goes back to like 80s robot music, but you guys seem to like that, so I'll let you talk about oh, 80s robot music. I feel like it's a soundtrack to like a robot movie and like the robots coming out. I and love robot movies. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's like, the, the, rest that's of like it. the majority of our, the our, our podcast is robot movies. That's true. I'm actually um, most, I'm more machine now than man, to be this, honest. This is true. This yeah. is true. Yeah. Uh, I'll lower third. Yeah. A lot of cybernetic augmentations. Yeah, 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 particularly. You know, it's funny you say that because um, my favorite Beck album is called uh, Midnight Vultures, yep. and it's the album that he 
kind of mimics Prince on. And there's a song that literally starts with two robots having sex, but it's just it's just these two machines that are just like like <laughs> crashing into each other. <laughs> It's yeah. so funny. Yeah, no, yeah. that that that's also my favorite Beck album. Yeah, um, which is uh, um, not a, a common thing, I think. Oh, everybody else is crazy. No, I'm just saying. I think Odele is usually uh, sure, pro- or, or Sea Change too, because that's the two modes. Actually, know? no, I lied. That was my favorite for a while. Mutations is probably ultimate. Yeah, Mutations my is good too. Yeah. Um, anyway, but yeah, no, I mean, as a fan of '80s robot music, um, you know, this definitely. <laughs> scratches my Devo and Oingo Boingo itch. But no, it, I, I, I think this song is great. And then, like, like I mentioned earlier, um, knowing that originally it was like anywhere from 12 to 14 minutes long and then had to be cut down to make room for uh, Take Me With You is so disappointing. You do get a little clip of it when the band's like rehearsing at one point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, yeah, I was okay with the show. And then, <laughs> <laughs> and then the song goes right into Darling Nikki. I just wanted to give a visual. He's shirtless in a blindfold. And then at the end of Computer Blue, Apollonia arrives and he rips off the blindfold. <laughs> he can sense her presence. <laughs> You could say she was a sex fiend I met her in a hotel lobby Masturbating with a magazine She said, how'd you like to waste some time And I could not resist When I saw little Nikki grind not prepared how sexually explicit this song was. Wait, at all? The like, first time I heard it, I was just like, oh, jeez, okay. Like, did you hear this for the first time doing this? No. Oh, okay, no. I was going to say, because the Foo Fighters famously covered this in the early 2000s. I didn't know that. Really? Yeah. I don't oh, think yeah. I've ever heard that. Yeah, that was, I remember that being like a- I wasn't listening to the Foo Fighters in the early 2000s. That was a, that was a big- like on the radio? Yeah. Really? Uh-huh. Because I wasn't ever a huge Foo Fighters fan, but that was on the radio constantly. That was my first concert. Oh, yeah? Yeah. They hadn't put any albums out yet. They played at Lupo's, the old Lupo's, and uh, they were the, they weren't the opening act. The opening act was Hovercraft, which is Eddie Vedder's band with his wife. It was like drone rock. And then they played second. And then it was Mike Watt. He was the headliner. You were not alone in being shocked. Tipper Gore also. Yeah. <laughs> this led to the Parents Music Resource Center putting labels on explicit CDs from here on out after she heard the song after buying it for her daughter. Yeah, actually. Well, her, her daughter was singing along to oh, it. Oh, was that what? Yeah, yeah, that would be a little shocking. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, off, yeah. coming off of that, 1984 was a, a big year for pearl clutching and and, <laughs> and uh, warning labels because not only did Darling Nikki contribute to the parental advisory 
label on music, but this year Gremlins and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom both came out and people were like, we need something between PG and R because there's mm. a lot of guts in both of these movies. Especially Gremlins and Blenders. Yep, and yeah. Microwaves. Uh-huh. PG-13, baby. <laughs> Do you like uh, this song? You know, I don't know if I like it. It's not like as I'm listening to the album, it's a little bit disruptive. It's a, it's a good transition from Computer Blue, but... Um... But, it, I mean, it really expresses the adolescent angst, and the energy to it is incredible. And, um, yeah, I think in the in the context of the movie, it's it's pretty powerful. Yeah. I love people's reactions in the crowd at first half. They're, like, so annoyed with him. Yeah. <laughs> it's so just, strange to yeah. be like, this is the reaction to this? Yeah. They're just like, <laughs> I really like how how minimal the verses are and how playful they sound. Mm-hmm. They don't sound like... It sounds like kind of laid back and kind of charming, even though it's being sexually explicit. And then the chorus comes and it's aggressive. Mm-hmm. And I like that kind of dichotomy between those two parts of the songs. And then he's just like guttural screams at the end. Mm-hmm. And it's just great to hear his voice. It just feels like it's in the pocket. Like he yeah. knows how to hit those notes. He knows the right way to scream and to right. get that. And, and in the movie, he's just, like, writhing around on stage. Like oh, yeah. he said, without a shirt, and he's just, like, gyrating. He's and, going to town on that speaker. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Apollonia is crying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she leaves, and that's when he's like, come back, Nikki. And it just, yeah. like, is... But right after he gets off the stage, he gets confronted with everyone, and they're like, your stage ain't no place for your personal space. Like father, like son, your music <laughs> makes no sense to no one but yourself. <laughs> it's just like, is this really the impression we get at this point with this music? He could have uh, made his on-screen persona a little more, I don't know, cryptic, and and, yeah. and the music could have been a little weird. It is like, in terms of the, the few things we need to really suspend our disbelief with, again, it, it, as we've mentioned, that they're the worst house band <laughs> in the movie. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I can, I can maybe buy that, like, oh, this, this shit's too weird for this for this crowd or something like that. I could buy something like that, but they don't yeah. really approach it that way. Yeah. They, they, they say it's too personal. Yeah. Right. Or, you know, like maybe half the crowd, like, boo and throw bottles at him or something. Yeah. They need to build the tension in the film that, that builds so that he has, like, one last chance to prove it before, you know, he's out and... Morris Day's new band, Apollonia 6, is in, right? Yeah. Because there's mm-hmm. only three slots or something now. <laughs> what do you think of the Apollonia 6 song, Sex Shooter? Mm. <laughs> yeah. Flesh. I, yeah. I, I mean, was it deliberately terrible, do you think? <laughs> there's a whole album. And Prince wrote all the songs. Yeah. You know, I can't imagine that he would be like, yeah, fuck this shit. Like, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's 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 almost like Spinal Tap Sex Farm bad. Like, it's so <laughs> stupid. And... um like and are they performing at a strip club or are the guys just making the choice to throw money at them? They're all in lingerie, yeah. yeah. This is the aforementioned lingerie cape yeah, yeah, <laughs> section yeah. of the movie. <laughs> yeah, it's like just like a kind of like a stupid disco number and Yeah. And it's like Apollonia, you can do better, like t- take notes from Wendy. Like yeah. you don't have to Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Wendy's awesome. Yeah. And then immediately following the scene. Morris is coming on to Apollonia in like a an alleyway. Prince comes out of nowhere and just sucker punches Morris while <laughs> driving while by his motorcycle. motorcycle. It's so ridiculous. It's really funny. And then we have the fight under the overpass yeah. between Prince So and Prince Apollonia. takes Apollonia and they go to the underpass and then they get into a fight. Um and, and she's drinking. He's he confronts her about drinking and which I didn't really it kind of came out of nowhere for me. He's like, Oh, like why are you drinking kind of thing? I don't know. It, like I associated it with like the 
the real prince who's famously very clean and like that gets in the way of the music and so that was the only kind of connection i can sure make. yeah I, and i think too i not just for himself personally but i think in the same way that he sort of insisted that the revolution appear in their not costumes um <laughs> but costumes yeah I, I think he really had an aversion to the band being photographed drinking even or i mean certainly you're doing worse but um you know, knowing that I was going to get out there and, and just... There's just no context for it before this moment in the movie. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, you can maybe make the the logical jump that maybe his dad drinks. I mean, yeah. that's why yeah. he's so terrible to his... Or not not why, but you know, yeah. exacerbates why he's the way he is to his mother. He pushes her down to the ground. It's yeah. pretty shocking. And it's, again, it's another kind of violent moment where he sees himself and his father and he's, he's wor- worried about what he's going to become. And she takes off... He goes back home. Mm-hmm. And this sequence is, is, I think it's pretty well directed, especially because there's no dialogue. Um, so I just kind of wanted to break it down. But he gets home and there's like a, a shot of a broken lamp on the floor. And then there's like a kind of a medium shot of his father in the hallways, backlit, smoking a cigarette. And you can see his dad has a gun. Then you see a close-up of a hand on a light switch and he switches the light and then the gun goes off. And then we kind of see the aftermath of this where his father's laying on the ground he's got a bandage on his head there's some police officers there's uh, some uh, medics and they're all taking care of him and then there's this uh, wide shot with Prince in the center and he's kind of framed with like five or so um, police officers firefighters etc around him kind of framing him and they're talking to him but we can't hear anything but we do hear the gun going off we continually hear the gun going off in the background and then after It cuts to Prince alone by himself, and he has visions of himself hanging, and then he just trashes his whole bedroom. He just destroys everything in there. And then he finds uh, sheet music, and he's kind of rifling through the sheet music. And then we hear some of the variations of the piece uh, from the, the bridge of Piano Blue. We hear it on piano. You mean? Computer Blue. Computer Blue, sorry. And then Prince sits down on the piano and he, um, he starts playing Purple Rain on the piano. And then right at the end of this, and this is all a very expressive, kind of beautifully lit scene. And then right after this, it goes into the time again, <laughs> playing the song called The Bird. <laughs> and it's really, it's kind of jarring. Yeah. yeah, I didn't really expect that. And I was like, oh, I'm not sure if that works completely. Because I, I thought that was a really lovely scene. Especially because like a, a modern scene like that, I think, they would maybe hold your hand more. Mm-hmm. Although I say that now and I'm, I'm thinking of the new um, A Star is Born and it has a similar sort of mm-hmm. sequence in the back half, which I won't spoil. But it's also kind of framed in similar ways. First of all, I thought that ge- it was a genius uh, move to have him flip the light switch when the gun goes off because he's just implicated in it somehow. Yeah. And Although I kind of wish they synced up the gunshot with At the, the switch because it it's, it's a little bit off it did have it, where that it was like he did something yeah. that caused the first this. time i saw it i was like oh interesting and i rewound yeah and then the second time i'm like oh it's strange that it's off a bit yeah and the other and then you know his i thought his acting was fairly good for not yeah. you know during this time when he was so disturbed by seeing and apparently this was a really vulnerable moment for prince himself and seeing himself being hung or you know am i going to follow this path to that end um, and then the other thing um, I thought, I don't know if it was just my perception of it, but you see him after he finds his dad's music and the theme is being played. He goes down the hall and he goes off screen and you hear a sound 
and it's him loading the tape deck, but it also sounds like a loading a gun. That's what I thought it was at first. I thought that was brilliant because he could go one way or the other there. And so that was just a nice touch before he sits down and, and plays Purple Rain. Yeah, and you brought up his acting, which we haven't really talked about. And yeah. I actually think he does a pretty terrific job throughout. Yeah. I think he's the, the strong point of the movie. I think everyone else kind of struggles around him, yeah. especially Apollonia. And it's not entirely her fault because they don't give her much to do. Right. Uh, they don't give really anyone much to do. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and even like bit players like his parents, they just have heightened moments. But he's the only one that's really allowed to play several things, and I think he he handles it really well. Yeah, I, I think whatever that thing about Prince was that that charisma, that um, you know, that innate star power that he had on stage, I think translates, you know, relatively successfully here. Uh, I don't know that I would have wanted to see him appear in like you know, <laughs> getting like David Bowie in Labyrinth kind of parts. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> he didn't like his. Um, guest appearance on New Girl? Oh, no. Prince? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I uh, don't remember that. Yeah, it's like sh- shortly before he died, I yeah. believe. Yeah, the year or so before he died. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so the time. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of awkward transitions. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I can't, I have no recollection of this song right now. Was the dance, the bird, like a thing? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I think in the point of the movie, I was just kind of like, all right, let's get to the good stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I know it's, it's all set I know up, it, right? It's all set up. I think that's kind of the point is maybe they're showing this moment and then Prince will come out and they'll be like, oh, shit. Like, OK, he, this is the real it's artist. The contrast, yeah. Yeah. Which must suck to be <laughs> Morris Day and just kind of. Well, a- I guess like also like in real life, like he did, like you said, set up these bands. And so the time would open for him and stuff. But these tensions that were existing between them, the competition was real. Like yeah. um, I think Magnolia like, or um, Albert, the the writer and director saw that incorporated in it like he he witnessed it and maybe they weren't as pronounced but there was that tension that they were playing off yeah so prior to this prince and the revolution and the time and vanity six did a a a tour called the triple threat tour and a lot yeah a lot of this rivalry they had was sort of was yeah it was all real Uh, so this is um jellybean johnson who is the drummer for the time uh talking about a particular incident uh we're on stage and all of a sudden morris day's big bodyguard grabs uh, time guitarist Jesse Johnson and snatches him off stage. Prince takes his place playing guitar. They take Jesse backstage, chain him to a coat rack or whatever, and proceed to pour syrup or whatever food was in their dressing room all over him. Now the band is wondering what the hell's going on. Prince is still playing guitar, and Jesse's gone, and then they got Jerome. So when we got done with the last song, we decided we're going to kick their ass. We took all of our suits off, got into some dirty clothes, and we got eggs and everything, and we made them quite uncomfortable. We wouldn't do it while the show was going on because we figured we would have got fired. But the minute the show was over, it was on. We got all of them. We didn't discriminate. I so, like how they're going to start shit and it's just like throwing eggs. Right. I mean, it's 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 almost it's very, um, you know, familial, very like sibling rivalry. But I think it definitely got heated into the point where Morris Day and the time were a band, but they weren't allowed to make their own decisions. I've even heard that, um, you know, Prince played all the music and then. Morris Day was required to match the vocal track that Prince would lay down. Like he couldn't make any derivations or kind of make it in his own in any way. And that was sort of where the the antagonistic relationship in the film came from. And I guess it continued on set. And there's like a scene where Jerome comes in and, and throws the tickets at, at Prince to Apollonia's show. And that was supposed to be Morris Day's part, but he just didn't show up on set because the tension was going on. <laughs> right. And then even, uh, I think it's after 
this song where Prince is sulking in his dressing room and and the Times walking through the the backstage hallway and they're just bragging about how great they are and they walk by his dressing room and Morris Day looks in and goes, "How's the family?" <laughs> Which is like that's brutal, cutting, yeah. yeah, yeah. But then. Oh, then we get a little bit of his humanity too, where like the rest of his entourage kind of walks on laughing, and he kind of stops and like clearly looks miserable for having said it. Like, and is also dancing to Prince's song at the end. Like I feel like he gets not redemption, but he's definitely. Oh yeah, Every, everybody yeah. who doubted Prince in the Revolution for no good reason <laughs> is like doing that. It's such like a, a cliched movie moment where like the the bad guy is like yeah slow clap <laughs> they did it they yeah. finally won me over yeah the oh. owner of first avenue is like biting his lip during <laughs> oh he's so like oh, yeah <laughs> so right after the time perform we get purple rain finally mm. purple rain uh and and prince dedicates it to his father and he says that it was written by wendy and lisa which is not true but no but in the context of the movie Yes, in the context of the movie. But it's, it is strange uh, and also kind of selfless in a way to put that out into the public sphere to say mm-hmm. that these people wrote this song mm-hmm. when he was the writer of the song. And apparently he wrote it for Stevie Nicks as a country song. Mm-hmm. And she's just like, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know what to do with this at all. And then when he heard uh, Wendy and Lisa playing the chord changes, which are at the beginning of the song uh, on guitar, he was just like, oh, that's not an arrangement I thought was possible for the song and that gave it new life uh and then it became what it is which is this part power ballad part gospel and soaring and romantic and um let's just play it Of 1983, I was six months old, and is this the an Do you remember this or <laughs> no? It's not in memory. It's I was like, that's impressive. Cultural memory. The Revolution had this benefit concert at First Avenue. I think it was for their dance company or something, and it kind of like came together and kind of towards right before the show, it was kind of like this feeling like, oh, something's happening. Like we're doing this or something. But otherwise, it was just another concert. It was Wendy's first concert. She was 19 years old. Dickerson had left the band and she had been hanging around with Lisa and he had Prince had heard her play and invited her and um, they play Purple Rain for the first time in concert and there's actually I don't know if you guys have seen this you can watch the recording of it 
And it starts out and and Wendy's like holding the stage and she plays. I'm obviously in love with Wendy, but she plays these chord progressions like five times over before Prince even kind of gets out there. And and then they they play the song and it and it's like 13 minutes long. It has an extra verse. But otherwise, you recognize it. It is that recording that they used in the film. And it was the first time they performed it on stage, but they had it down because of all these incredible, all the rehearsing and Prince's drive. The band had it down, and it's incredible to hear. I mean, obviously, they played with little, and there's some overdubs with the strings and everything, but you can hear the original in it. Like, almost, it's almost perfect, and you can watch this original recording. Watching this was probably the most, like, moving experience of my exposure to Prince. Um, Just as a creator, like, I'm not a musician, but just as anyone who's tried to, like, create something, you can feel, like, that sheer kind of perfection and freshness that's happening and that happened in this unlikely moment I think they didn't even like know they were going to record it until like last minute even and they happened to catch it and from that concert we got Purple Rain and I think the last two songs on the film too which is just insane to me that that something that came out so perfect happened just the first time the first time I made an egg and cheese the other day and it was perfect (laughs) you're you're truly the 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 prince of breakfast that was probably the only time ever yeah so I'm sure you were aware of this song, Jody, yeah. um, beforehand, but not like the full eight minutes and 40 seconds. No, and I hadn't, yeah, I think I thought it was a little bit like Purple Rain, cartoony, like I hadn't felt the emotion. I think I, I, I got a sense of it watching that Super Bowl show when it's pouring rain and the emotion of it. Um, but it's strange because you don't need to watch the movie or have the context of the movie to not feel the emotion. I think they talk about like recording the song in the warehouse and and playing it over and over and over again and they found when they left they found this homeless woman outside who was just weeping just hearing it because there's this like it it's poignant um and and um i don't know if i just didn't slow down enough or why i didn't wasn't captured but i'm so glad i have now come to appreciate it and it's making yeah i I think it's one of those songs too where maybe the the hype and reputation are sort of maybe if you aren't as familiar you read that as like a false flag. Like I can't, it can't possibly be that good. And it turns out it is. Yeah. And you're um, like, what's purple rain? It sounds like cartoony almost, mm-hmm. you know, you don't understand the significance of it. Yeah. yeah. And that Super Bowl performance too, uh, is rightfully spoken about with all that reverence. And actually the, um, on YouTube, there's a, a, a video clip that the NFL put up on their channel talking with some of the behind the scenes people. And like, yeah, it was the only time in 40 years that it had ever rained on the Super Bowl and they're in Miami and it's like typical like Florida downpour and they let Prince know and he's like oh, okay like if you can make it rain more that'd be great like he was just like <laughs> he's like I'm doing this I'm gonna do it anyway you know he had all these you know guitar changes it was all live there was no you know sort of dub track the inherent danger of being on a massive slippery stage I mean the backup dancers were in like nine inch heels and he's just like strutting around as if he doesn't run the risk of falling and snapping <laughs> his neck in front of thousands of people. He just it's it's wild. It's such a cool performance. He described what purple rain means uh, as when there's blood in the sky, red and blue equals purple. Purple rain pertains to the end of the world and being with the one you love and letting your faith God guide you through the purple rain. 
Okay. So he always talks about like apocalyptic kind of things. Yeah. I've heard, I've came across a few different interpretations. One really poor one was that his some biographer was trying to make significance of the fact that his high school colors were red and blue. I was like, come on, we can get a little further. But I liked what Wendy, surprise, surprise, had to say. This is a quote from Wendy about Purple this Rain. This is the Wendy podcast. Sorry. We <laughs> no. should do a Wendy podcast. We should do a Wendy podcast. I'm diving deep into Wendy and Lisa. Okay. She said, a new beginning, purple, the sky at dawn, rain, the cleansing factor. I thought that was very nice. Yeah. Yeah. But I like the end of the world kind of. that. It all, it, it, made it, it, com- it brings together so much. I mean, you do have the mixing of the red and the blue and the kind of blurring of gender lines there too. And then it's just... It's purple. Who doesn't like purple? And you couldn't have like yellow rain or brown rain. Like it's be hard to find yeah, it. Bra- black brown rain. rain would like, be fun. <laughs> no. uh, and black black rain is a, a lot of other colors. Isn't don't that work. a Michael Douglas action movie? Yeah. Is that the one directed by Ridley Scott? I think it's. Is it Ridley or Tony Scott? I think it's Ridley. It's a Scott. Uh, uh, I, I, I didn't realize how much of his music was so apocalyptic. Um, oh yeah. Like I didn't realize that 1999 was like, well, we're all fucked. So yeah. So let's have fun. <laughs> this performance in the movie. Is really just kind of like a medium shot of Prince on stage performing, and it it doesn't cut much for the nine minutes and forty seconds. Every once in a while, it cut to the uh, audience reaction, and and it, you could tell everyone's just like, "Oh shit, okay, like this is the real deal." Uh, so it's sprinkled in nicely, but it's mostly just this this medium shot of, of Prince performing. Uh, and th- you also get a few close-ups of Apollonia, and she's crying, and it's like th- that moment of just like, oh, I don't care what you did. You wrote this song. Yeah. <laughs> I-, I love you. <laughs> I actually, I don't think she's, I know they cut to her in other places, but during Purple Rain, do they? Because I remember being like. I think at the tail. Maybe not, not no, very you're much, right, though. you're right, you're right, And I was glad, I mean, I was yeah. really glad. It's mostly just it the audience. It, yeah, yeah, about something more, about his father, but then more, you know. There is that one great wide shot where it's Prince on stage, and he's in purple, and it's just red hands waving yeah. back and forth. And it looks so cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And we, you do see her in the next couple songs, but. Yeah. 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 And we do get that emotional shot of. Morris and the club owner both being like, yeah, this is he it. nailed it. Yeah, okay. He is the greatest. <laughs> yeah. You can have Apollonia. <laughs> we haven't talked about how great Morris's laugh is. <laughs> Just like a, that like bird squawk. <laughs> right. So, so, so after the performance, Prince is overwhelmed. He rushes backstage and, and then he goes back for the encore and that's when he actually sees Apollonia. Yeah. And she's kind of crying and it's kind of like this unacknowledged yeah. moment of just like, I got you, boo. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'll give you your earring back. Yeah, I'll give you your earring <laughs> back. And then it goes right into, um, I guess it, was, it would be his encore, and it's I Would Die For You. So that song's actually uh, become kind of a wedding staple recently. Oh, at really? least from my perspective, you know, I shoot a lot of weddings, uh, and um, 
1999 is a popular wedding song. Uh, but this song I, I hear quite frequently, too. Uh, so it's pretty great. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a good song. And in the movie, early on in the movie, his it's his dad's line. He says, I would die for you. He says that to his mom. So it has that resonance. And then, it, of course, has that kind of religious. He starts out, I'm, I'm your Messiah. I would die for you kind of mixing of, again, this, his spiritual life and the kind of secular love yeah. song that it is. Yeah. A lot of good um, hand choreography yeah. as well. Uh-huh. With the, and also with their guitars kind of going back and forth kind mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah. I love the great uh, 16th notes on the hi-hats, just like really driving the song. But it, it's it's pretty simple. It's a short song, short pop song. But yeah. it's it's kind of joyous for something that's... It's a party, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I love that they're just doing that, like, I f- he's, they're making the four. and the, I love that he's yeah. doing, like, tech speak before. Yeah, Wendy does it, too. Like, yeah. she does it to the audiences. <laughs> yeah, it's really... So yeah, they're making emojis. It's really, mm-hmm. it's really charming. So during this performance, too, we, we find out that his dad is in the hospital. So it seems like his dad is going to pull through. Yeah, I think when Prince like originally wrote it, he wanted it to be like a murder suicide of his parents or something, and so they they went. With yeah, the I heard. I heard there was a much darker earlier yeah. draft. Like, yeah, the dad Heavy. doesn't survive, and yeah, yeah. like take it down a couple notches, <laughs> Prince. This is only your first movie. Save the murder suicide for the sequel. Yeah, but they don't tone it down to the point where like they cut to the hospital and his dad's like dancing. Yeah, he's in not the like dancing bed. in the hospital right. bed. Yeah, it's still like <laughs> imagine that'd be uh, so funny. A lesser movie would have made that move. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then he's like picking up like the scattered sheet music in his room and he, he goes in and he has, we didn't mention this, but earlier on he steals Apollonia's earring. No, he well, takes no, no, an she, earring out of his ear and gives it to her. But then she throws it at him. And then mm-hmm. she throws it at him uh-huh. under the bridge scene, I think. Yep. And oh, and she also, after the sex shooters song, she, she pulls her hair back to show him her earring and he, he pulls his sunglasses down and yeah. looks. So the earring has been this like adolescent, yeah. you know, yeah. thing. So we, it's interesting because we don't, you know, we, we see Prince and, and for all we know, he's alone in the apartment and he picks it up and he looks at the earring and then he thro- throws it and you're kind of startled at him throwing it. And then Apollonia is in the basement and she catches it. <laughs> It's, awesome. it's so hokey. It's really, it's really funny. Yeah, and then and then they kiss, and then it goes right into "Baby, I'm a Star."
social cues. Get it out of the way right now. What? In the movie, like the this song kind of culminates with him making his guitar ejaculate. Oh yes, that was a staple of Prince shows. Oh, yeah, 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 mm-hmm. yeah. So he just basically it's the very end of the yeah film. Mm-hmm. Yep. There it is. <laughs> there it is. Okay, <laughs> that out of the way. Okay, cut that one out of the way. Okay, let's talk about the song. Um, yeah. Well, I think it's a perfect, really bookend to the movie, and really encapsulates, I think, that confidence that we started out talking about of Prince. He, I think, he always felt himself to be a star. Knew he was what knew his potential. I guess in 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 pushing for this film and in in his music. And, um, you know, friends or bandmates would talk about how, like, even before he was famous, he would, like, make them go into, like, get gas and stuff for him because he would be recognized. But he wouldn't. He wasn't famous yet. So he was already practicing the role, you know. So I think, you know, Baby, I'm a Star just kind of claiming that identity and in this celebratory way was wonderful. And I love his classic Yelp at the beginning of this of this song. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's similar to I Would Die For You. They're both pretty mm-hmm. joyous, mm-hmm. up-tempo songs. It's interesting because on the album version of Purple Rain, uh, the song Purple Rain is actually the final song. I think in the context of the movie, it's probably better to go out on the the joyous note, um, especially after everything that precedes this this moment. And and they really, their ending really does feel celebratory, even if not all of it is earned because... You know, we haven't really seen Apollonia since she pushed him. And it, 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 the movie's basically saying, like, oh, through the power of song, we'll all come together and love yeah, each other right. and all that stuff, which is hokey and what whatnot. But I, I, I think it's fine. You have to just kind of extend the fact that he has learned to – he gives Wendy and Lisa credit, and he's learned to kind of collaborate and to put others – First yeah. and kind of like hope that that's going to transfer into his. It's kind of like a, like a like almost like we talked about earlier how Prince is you know everyone in this is almost like mythological like they're all characters they're larger than life so a lot of the heavy lifting for this movie is all done in in like the, the musical montages mm-hmm. and so and in some ways it's kind of great because. A lot of other movies would probably beat you over the head with a lot of these things. And granted, maybe a couple of steps would, would, would make it seem less like ridiculous, for lack of a better word. But I think it also works kind of as camp in some ways, mm-hmm. you know, because the whole thing is so, it's silly. Yeah, it's yeah. yeah, this movie doesn't do subtle at all. No. Um, but you're right. It's, it's that camp element to it that sort of makes it all work, which is why, you know, after watching it, Sandra and I were, were talking about it. She's like, yeah, the, the, the sexual politics in this were not great. <laughs> but it is still, um, I think you're, it, you're able to sort of like recognize that and discuss it without overall it sort of sullying the experience of what is ultimately a very campy experience. Yeah, I also think that some of the heavier uh, stuff with regards to sexual politics you know, Prince doesn't come off well in those scenes, and I think that's intentional. So I think, not that I'm writing it off, but I do think like it's not like saying like, oh, this violence towards women is is okay. Yeah, it's not glorifying it. No, not at all. Um, it could be way worse. Uh, obviously, uh, Jody, you mentioned the dumpster scene, which right. was was played as a joke, and and that felt really yeah really awful. And I guess Warner Brothers had a a problem or concern with that scene, but they played it for some test audiences, and they got enough laughs that they went for it. I know. Anyway, I don't think that would that would fly today. But I do think it's like you said the the relationship with Apollonia is, is explored in a sort of authentic way where you can kind of 
at, you know, at least see what the film's intention is there. And then I have to say, Wendy and Lisa really do at least stand as foils to this other way of being a woman on stage. And I think in their real relationship to Prince, too, that Wendy brought something to the band where she was a woman and yet he, he didn't have to she wasn't a sexual object, you know, she wasn't, he didn't have to deal with that. So they could play off each other. They could, you know, um, without that kind of tension, but, but create something together. And so I think that's what struck me in her confidence and her pose at 19, like, and, um, and Lisa as well. And then the fact that that line, that plot line of, um, they're creating this music that the character of the kid, I guess, in the movie Prince, takes, you know, and and celebrates and gives credit to. And so I feel like that theme is kind of balancing um, what he's, his trajectory in the in the Apollonia relationship. Sure. And then, you know, to that point as well, contrasting that with how Morris, you know, takes the opportunity to, to showcase Apollonia on stage. You know, he clearly would not have given uh, Wendy and Lisa the opportunity to, to be what they were with the revolution if, if they had sort of joined his camp. Like Apollonia did. Lingerie and capes. We should probably mention that the movie ends on a freeze frame of of, of Prince (laughs) on stage. There's a couple of freeze frames in that montage of the party songs at the end there. It's pretty great. Yeah, it's awesome. So uh, what did you think? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I I mean, all of the non-music stuff was super campy like we've discussed. Sandra's brief review of Purple Rain which I was excited to share with all of us, uh, was um, it's a lot like porn. There's a story there, but we all know what we're really here for. <laughs> and in this case, it was a musical performances. <laughs> was how she boiled it down. And I think, you know, there's something to that. I don't know how effective it would have been if it didn't have this great album and these amazing onstage performances. If, the, if Prince's line of thinking had been, I want to be in a movie, and it's just straight acting for an hour and a half without the thing he's amazing at. Probably would have gone the way of all those other rock star movies that made studios nervous about greenlighting this in the first place. But sure. it had, you know, the things that maybe wouldn't have held up to scrutiny on their own were anchored by this just uh, amazing body of work and presence to to sort of make it this this cult icon it is it's certainly a unique experience mm-hmm. as a movie there doesn't really feel like many modern equivalents no and i was trying to think of other movies like that and I, I you know i i can't things like um the who's tommy came to mind which is just fucking weird yeah and not in a necessarily in a fun way like no this is or um you know i've never seen rock and roll high school but i don't know how it's fun <laughs> yeah yeah oh yeah it's a very different movie, though. Mm-hmm. And and the Ramones are really, they're the backbone of the movie, but there's like a, a core group of actors that are, are are driving the narrative. And then the Ramones are just kind of in the periphery. Mm-hmm. It's worth watching. Yeah. I, I think so. If you like the Ramones. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, there was something special going on here. Obviously, I mean, Prince tried to direct two other movies that I did not get good reviews later in life. And um, this one, I feel like, like you said, it's the music that is is magic, but also like a lot of incredible collaboration coming together in Minneapolis at, at that time. Um, and I do respect the the writing of it and the way that, and the acting and that, but I, yeah, it, it is what really pulls you in is the performances. And I was so glad to have the 
film and the narrative as an introduction to the album, I guess. And then and then the album itself is, you know, a thing apart even from the film as the way it's put together. The songs are slightly different arrangement, but very tight. It's like 45 minutes. I was There was a family reunion in Massachusetts when I was starting to listen to it, and I had to go back and forth between Providence and there, and it was an hour and a half drive, so it was just enough time to listen to the album twice through with an encore of Purple Rain, and it was just lovely and tight and wonderful. Um, so while I'm grateful for like the movie as the experience into it, like in the end, you know, you, if you just had the music, I would be, I would be happy. You had asked us um, at the beginning of the episode if we ever felt a sense of regret. Mm-hmm. So um, now that you've gone through an experience of this, mm-hmm. do you feel any regret, or, or are you just now excited to keep? listening to have now have Prince be a part of your life yeah I mean the overwhelming feeling is I'm excited to have Prince be a part of my life because it feels like there's so much more to explore right you can branch off into the time and Wendy and Lisa and then all the songs that Prince recorded for or gave to other artists because of his limits with his contract with Warner Brothers and everything there's just so much more um so I'm thrilled to have him be a part of my life and next time I'm in Minneapolis I'll definitely go to Paisley Park and 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 back to First Ave and experience those landmarks in a new way um I think that's really all I I can do now I'll always feel a little bit of sad of of not having maybe the the experience of of Prince in life but that's that's the way it is but yeah no I'm really grateful to have this exposure now yeah, I mean, I think he recorded like 39 albums. A <laughs> so, lot of music. I mean, he was... He uh, just lived in the studio. Yeah, I mean, it's its an intimidating body of work, too. I, yeah. When he uh, when he died, I, I did think, oh, I should go back and listen to some, some prints. And I was like, I have no... I, I'm just going to start with the easiest stuff. So, you know, I listened to Purple Rain in 1999, but there's a lot to dig into. So yeah, I'm excited to do that as well, and possibly more to be released from the vault. Yeah, there there are a so, whole bunch of uh, you mentioned the songs he gave to other people, and one of the yeah. posthumous releases was collection of his recordings of those songs. So Jody, on our show, we make recommendations based off of our topic of conversation. So, do you have any recommendations for Prince fans for where they should go next? I didn't get like outside of Prince, the world of Prince, actually, but I want to recommend that people do look up that recording of the First Avenue show in 1983 when they recorded Purple Rain because it's pretty incredible. I'm going to check that out. Yeah. Um, And that people go to First Avenue with and next time they're in Minneapolis and like experience the show in that venue. Um, And then, yeah, I I think diving into the time because I I think there's something there. There's some songs that I could just throw apart throughout but um i'm definitely going to be listening to to more of morrissey in the time too tony yeah i've got a couple um i mentioned bowie a few times and i'm going to recommend his album station to station good one uh which is a great one yeah and i think sort of in the way that prince inhabited you know the persona of the kid in this movie and throughout his career tended to sort of be very mercurial in the way he presents himself as an artist whether it be adopting a an uh, impronounceable symbol for a few years. Um, you know, Bowie did that all the time. So Station to Station is his album as the the Thin White Duke persona. And it's great. It's got some awesome songs on it. Uh, you know, the biggest one being Golden Years. Um, wop, wop, wop. Uh, and the other one is kind of a random recommendation, uh, but I'm going to I'm gonna recommend uh, The Adventures of Buckaroo Bonsai in the Eighth Dimension oh, so because... Good. As the revolution were being introduced at the beginning of the movie, I was like, oh, I feel like they would have gone on tour with the Hong Kong Cavaliers, <laughs> which if you haven't seen it, Buckaroo Banzai is a, a scientist and adventurer and superhero and also the front man for a band. And they all kind of have ridiculous get ups. It's amazing. Yeah. 
Peter Weller, Jeff Goldblum, good cast, yeah. really funny. John Lithgow, Chris Lloyd. Yeah, great dialogue. Uh, so I, I have a few different recommendations. One of them is a recent documentary that's actually you could watch on Netflix. It's directed by Martin Scorsese. It's called Rolling Thunder Review, a Bob Dylan story. Uh, and this is similar in the sense that Dylan was this guy that always uh, was elusive with his character. And and he, you never knew who the true Dylan was. And that was part of his mystique. So this movie actually blends fact and fiction. And it's about this tour that he did in the 70s, uh, late 70s, uh, called the Rolling Thunder Review. And it's like shortly after he put out the album, um, I think it's Desire. And so the, the documentary kind of has like new footage with performers that were part of this tour, including Dylan himself, um, and then also f- original footage of actual tour performances. And it's pretty fascinating. Uh, like I said, like there are, without reading about it, I wouldn't have known what was fake and what was real. It's, it's interesting. Another movie I want to recommend is um, called Dancer in the Dark. And I wanted to to talk about another musician that gave a, a great performance in a movie. And that's um, this is a movie by Lars von Trier. And it has this just absolutely heartbreaking performance by Bjork. And she's one of my favorite um, artists of all time. And she has a lot of similarities to Prince. Um, very experimental and, and forward thinking. Um, and she just this movie took so much out of her that she said she would never act again. Um, but it's, it's a great movie and it's a musical. So she did all the music to it. Um, uh, and then I wanted to recommend one more thing and that's, um, the man who fell to earth. And that's another great movie with a great performance by a musician. And that performance is by David Bowie. This kind of plays off of his, you know, sort of alien persona that he projected this otherworldly thing and he literally plays an alien that comes down to earth and kind of gets assimilated by um our culture Uh, it's really great and it's directed by uh, nicholas rogue who died uh, last year what are we talking about next time uh so next time our topic is still a little up in the air but we are going to have a guest again Uh, we're going to have comedian ken reed who is a stand-up comic based out of Boston. He's also the host of a podcast called TV Guidance Counselor, where every week he has on a guest that run the gamut from you know other stand-up comics to he's had people like Ted Danson and Billy West, who is a voice of Fry and uh, Ren and Stimpy. And the idea is uh, Ken has a huge collection of TV guides spanning decades, and he will ask his guests to pick an issue, and they will go through night by night and talk about the TV that they would have been watching. That's a great premise. Uh, yeah, it's wow. awesome. Uh, and it's sort of, a, you know, I, I find myself learning a lot about TV I hadn't watched before. Um, so, yeah, so still to be determined what we're going to cover, but uh, should be fun. Great. Jody, can you tell our listeners where uh, they can find you? Yeah, well, you can find me uh, in downtown Providence at What Cheer Writers Club most days. Um, but I'm at jodynoelvinson.com. And then if you are in Providence or a Rhode Island listener, whatcheerclub.org if you're interested in um, the, cl- the Writers Club and the podcasting studio here. Um, but yeah, I'm at jodynoelvinson on Twitter as well. Awesome. I think that does it for us. Thank you so much for letting me come on and exposing me to Prince. Yeah, no, it's it's been fun, and, and we look forward to having you on again. Yeah. Thanks, anytime. Great. Awesome. Thanks for listening to another episode of What Did We Miss? If you want to catch up on previous episodes, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify, Stitcher Premium, and Google Play. You can follow us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at What Did We Miss? And drop us a line at whatdidwemisspod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.